Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Tony here. If you've been enjoying One Step Beyond, and especially if you enjoy the fact we don't have ads running through it, please consider dropping something in the tip jar. Think of when you encounter a busker. You like what you hear, you put some loose change in the hat, and you go about your day knowing that you're doing your own little part to encourage creativity. Just look for the Support This Show link on whatever app you're using to listen along, or visit Supporter com forward slash one step beyond. Thank you. And now, on with the show. Hey, you! Welcome to episode 24 of One Step Beyond, a show about positively engaging with the world outside our door. I'm Tony Fletcher, a writer by trade, a runner by habit, and a traveller at heart. Our last episode, The Backcountry Bug, turned out to be our most popular to date, which I would love to say is down to the show just gradually increasing its audience, and maybe to some extent it is, but I believe our guest Julie Maguire had something to do with it too. People gravitated easily to her story, how she escaped the depression of her divorce by engaging in her love of the outdoors, in particular skiing, and the backcountry aspect that allows her to hike up on the skins of her skis and find her own routes back down again. If you were a first-time listener to One Step Beyond as a result of that show, well, hey, welcome back. This one is going to be different. But if you've been with me at least the last few months, you will recognise the tangent from the usual interview and or outdoor field recording. Because back at Thanksgiving, I put out what I called a half episode, a short story based on just one night of my family's year-long round-the-world backpacking trip in 2016, before I, too, got divorced. I had a really positive reaction to that short story, and some people asked me to do more of them. And since then, I've become aware of at least one more podcast that set itself up to do much the same thing. It does strike me that at a time when people are listening to more and more audiobooks and podcasts too, and perhaps spending less time curled up with a physical book or magazine story as a result, that this is a good format here to share one's travel adventures in narrative form. This time round, I'm not calling it a half episode. This is the real thing. It's a proper part of One Step Beyond philosophy of taking a step outside your comfort zone to enrich your life. After all, you can't engage in that much more of an upheaval in your life than to take a year out of it, leaving behind your home, your work, your friends, your habits, every possession you thought you held dear, and to take a kid out of school for a year along with you. Only to come back that much more certain that what you thought was the rest of your life no longer is. So, I hope you'll engage and indulge in this short story, which I've entitled Saharan Sundown. For those who heard the previous one, You Don't Believe in God, episode 15.5, this one picks up conveniently, right where that left off, in Morocco, in January 2016. Join me again on the other side, where, as ever, I will provide updates on our recent episodes and my own activities as they relate to this show. And I'll wax lyrical about some other podcasts you might enjoy too. In the meantime, wherever you may be, and however you may be, I hope you join in and enjoy it as we prepare to go. One 
Rahim meets us off the bus in the pre-dawn Mazuga half-light. He's as chill in person as when I spoke with him by phone two days ago to arrange our stay. He drives the three of us, my wife, our 11-year-old son and myself, in a comfortable car to his Dar Tafoit on the edge of the Sahara Desert, maybe 15 minutes away. As is custom in this region of the Berbers, the building's walls and roofs are constructed almost entirely of mud and straw, but Dartafoit, while relatively contained, is no primitive compound. Our villa has air conditioning, other electrics and plumbing, and tiled ceilings and floors. We're shown to this accommodation just in time to watch, from our building's rooftop, the sun rise over the Sahara Desert, the full moon providing a spotlight from behind us. As a child, I would read about the Sahara, about the town of Timbuktu at its heart, a place so remote I thought it must be a myth. And I would wonder what the Sahara might actually look like in person, what it might feel like underfoot, and how anything could possibly be so vast. And now, in the second half century of my life, I am finally in Africa, staring at it in person. Tonight, I will sleep in its sands. For now, though, we descend to our vast bedrooms, a rare plural for a family on budget travel, and catch a couple of hours shut-eye after the rigours of the all-night bus journey. Breakfast is served in the cool sunshine on the communal patio, alongside a typically and exquisitely tiled fountain for ablutions and a swimming pool that goes unclaimed this time of year, January. With little to do for the next several hours, I undertake my travelling tradition, running through a new environment. It's the fastest and easiest way not just to learn your surroundings, but to see more of them. I opt to go barefoot here on the periphery of the desert, enjoying the feel of the firm, warm morning sand under my feet, the novel sensation of being in the Sahara at last, as I log a few miles to explore the general area. I soon find myself looking back at what I can of our village, Takolch, its mustard-coloured mud and straw buildings camouflaging themselves into the Sahara. A grand hilltop structure beckons in one direction, the dunes of Ergchebi in another, and in between, amidst the scattered low-hanging trees and the other tourist dars, is a community hall of some kind from which emerge, right in front of me, a group of women, mostly clad in black burkas. It all feels suitably otherworldly, but there in the midst of it all are those universal reference points. Football pitches. Two of them, in fact. One has conventional metal goals, the other is makeshift, constructed of trimmed tree branches, the crossbars tied to the posts. The playing surface for both, however, is the same. The Sahara sand. There are no children around to kick a ball with. No men either and I'm hardly expecting the burqa-clad women to take to the pitch. Morocco is not a country setting any examples for sexual equality. As I home back in on Dartafoit, finally distinguishing it from similar surrounding structures, I find my wife out exploring the area for herself. I ask her to take a few pictures of me running barefoot for posterity. My favourite, however, is one I take myself, 
the foam planted on the ground looking up at me. My running cap, shades and Innovate Gator all protecting me from an unobscured sun now high in a bright blue sky directly above my head. There is no surface of the earth to be seen, and I could, dressed like this, just as well be at Burning Man. But I know otherwise. This photograph, for me, is forever Morocco. We sit around, soaking up the tranquillity, until the mid-afternoon, when we embark on our overnight trip into the sand dunes of Ergchebi, which extend from here all the way across the Algerian border to the east, at which point only then does the real Sahara, the true Sahara, the seemingly infinite Sahara of my childhood encyclopedias, then stretch thousands of miles across the African continent. We're introduced to our appointed guide for the journey, Muhammad, who in turn leads us to our anointed animals. They are four-legged and they have one hump each on their backs, which officially makes them not camels but dromedaries. Still, it's a camel ride we booked and it's a camel ride we consider ourselves undertaking. And though they are far from the most comfortable mode of transport, they turn out to be no worse on the rear end than a day on a road bike. As for camels' notorious bad tempers, perhaps that's just the two-humped variety. Ours seem quite content with their lot, ferrying humans out to a desert oasis and back and otherwise appearing to do little than sit or stand around. I'm typically opposed to engaging animals for human purposes, but camels have been domesticated in these parts for thousands of years. This, I assure myself, is what they do. We are joined on the trek, led by their own guide, by the only other family currently staying at Dar Tafoit during this off-season. Saeed, his wife and their two daughters hail from that cosmopolitan coastal city of Humphrey Bogart renown, Casablanca, and they exude happiness, success, contentment, warmth and love. The older daughter, Sarah, has recently finished college in the States and her English is beyond perfect. The younger daughter appears intimidated by this and stays mostly quiet, which we are later assured is rarely the case within the family's own walls. The mother is beautiful, in that well-off, Mediterranean, middle-aged way, but her English too is only passable and we converse little, though we will laugh a lot. As for Saeed, he is the very model of the family patriarch. Before we have even had a chance to be introduced, he is waving to us from his camel, taking photographs and video of our own family train, which, he assures me, once we get to know each other, he will send via email. And I know he will be true to his word. After we complete the hour-long journey to our oasis camp, barely more than a mile from the village, though far enough away to elude to desert isolation, Saeed is first to clamber up the dunes and quickly roll back down them, screaming with laughter as he does, his female brood enthusiastically encouraging his juvenile behaviour. He appears to have it made. We join his family on these dunes, some of which reach as high as 150 metres, 500 or so feet. Their spines so straight that, as my son notes in his diary, they look like they just used the gradient tool in Photoshop. I make a point of running up the steepest spine I can spy, about a 35 degree angle, and it's well worth the strenuous effort. From the summit, I feel like I am on top of the world. 
or at least on top of the Sahara. The sun is reclining now behind Mazuga, throwing an infinite variety of shadows and an impressive array of hues across the sand dunes. We are torn between admiring it with the naked eye and preserving the moment on our high-tech devices. As we alternate these analogue and digital lenses, the extent of desert tourism becomes rampantly apparent. Small oasis camps fill almost every valley between the sand dunes. These other encampments, I note, look much more grand than ours, which comprises of an outdoor kitchen, tables, chairs and a fire pit, all set within a ring of heavily insulated corrugated tin huts, the interiors of which contain literally nothing more than heavily blanketed beds. Aside from the docile dromedaries, now tied up at the gate, there are a couple of adoringly attentive cats for company, one of them a kitten. And that's it. But it's all we need. Dinner by the fire pit is the now familiar tagine and couscous, an easy vegan request. And as with all other meals I eat in Morocco, it's perfect. After the plates are cleared, our guides and kitchen staff break out a Moroccan-style guitar and animal skin drums for what we trust will be an authentic educational musical experience. <laughs> It quickly becomes apparent that none of them can hold a tune in a bucket, let alone a rhythm, which makes it all the more embarrassing when my son brings out his junior Martin guitar, the one he is carrying on his back around the world this year, and plays the SpongeBob SquarePants number, the Campfire Song song. Let's gather around the campfire and sing our campfire song. Our C-A-M-P-F-I-R-E-S-O-N-G song. And if you don't think that we can sing it faster, then you're wrong. Little help if you just sing along. At which we all sing along as we sing it faster and laugh at its gleeful stupidity. Mohammed, not to be outdone tell some jokes, including a particularly silly one about a line that I vow to remember but immediately forget. And his deadpan delivery, in faltering English, saves him face. There being no alcohol to drain, because, this being Morocco, there's none in the first place, and with the temperature dropping rapidly, the evening winds down quicker than it might back at the Catskills fire pit, and we retire to the sparse comfort of our cabins, where no number of blankets could be too many. We were awoken with a bang on the corrugated tin door by a call to come witness the dawn. We are not opposed to the idea. We have been in bed long enough to have accrued a good night's sleep and the pre-dawn wake-up call was always on the cards. But as we pull back the covers, we discover that it is freezing. The Nevada desert gets cold at night during Burning Man, but nothing like this. You could die out here as easily from hypothermia as from heat exhaustion. Nonetheless, we bundle up and then we trundle up the dunes alongside Saeed's family. And from that towering height above our encampment, it can be confirmed, the sunrise is a keeper. Ruffled clouds serve as filters, bouncing the pink, yellow, azure and violet reflections all across the desert sky, a cornucopia of colours to rival even that of the Grand Canyon. 
We wave signs of our appreciation to other groups of campers, gathered in similar awe on the peaks of neighbouring dunes. All of them have been similarly awakened and have braved the pre-dawn cold for this affirmation of natural beauty. Our son Noel has his video camera with him. We're determined that he get a vlog out of this experience. And to make it more entertaining, I film him in slow motion as he takes off running full tilt down the dune back to camp, breaking into a body roll when the incline decreases sufficiently. Back at the oasis, we suffer the hardship of a Moroccan breakfast. Pancakes, eggs, fruit, olives, toast, jams and copious cups of coffee and tea. And say our goodbyes to the delightful resident kitten and its mom before returning to our dromedaries and the ride into Tekoich. We're almost there when Mohammed, leading our family on foot, brings our caravan to a halt. The three camels lower themselves gracefully as they know how, which means a couple of short, sharp bumps to our bums, and we disembark. I'm confused. Surely we don't have to walk the camels into town. For his part, Mohammed, who has been so impressively cheerful these last 12 hours, looks forlorn. I have a wife and nine children, he begins, and I have a sense of what's coming. I do not get paid by Brahim to bring you here. Personally, I doubt this. There's something about Brahim that emotes honesty and fairness. But I don't interrupt. So at home, Mohammed continues, I make souvenirs. I ask you to buy some to support me and my family. All these are mine, he proclaims, at which he unrolls a blanket full of jewellery, tableware and other assorted knickknacks. Back in 1992, before we became parents, my then future wife and I went on one of our only other true overseas adventures, a wedding on the Ecuadorian coast, after which a group of us took a prearranged trip across the Andes into the western basin of the Amazon. There, in the jungle, we went on an additional canoe trip upriver, to what felt, to us at the time, like the most remote spot in all of South America, though we were likely a little further into the Amazon's interior than we are right now into the Sahara's vast expanse. Still, at that upriver spot, we were introduced to an isolated indigenous tribe, where we sat with its elder, a cheerful, toothless old man, long dead now, I am sure, who had little grasp of English, but who answered our questions through our guide. We were then invited to support the tribe by purchasing homemade jewellery, earrings and necklaces made out of colourful, dried-out dead beetles. I jumped at the opportunity, and I was proud of our purchases, eagerly anticipating the approving, or at least intrigued, comments I would get back home in New York. Until the end of our stay, when we got to the airport in Quito and found the exact same jewellery on sale in almost every store, and at half the price. And so, I respond to Mohammed's well-rehearsed and impressively delivered performance, not with the cynicism I harbour, but a more convenient truth, one we have rehearsed for weeks and which we have fallen back on several times already in this country of persistent and convincing salesmen. We are backpacking all year long, and we don't have the room to carry souvenirs. Mohammed's face crumbles further, as if I have personally condemned his family to starvation. But I am one step ahead of him. Let me just give you some cash, I say, and I press twice the amount of dirham into his hand as I'd initially intended as a tip. 
I don't need a souvenir. Mohammed looks at the money and I can almost see the wheels turning in his head. Calculating that he's come out of the deal perfectly well considering he hasn't had to part with any merchandise, he thanks me, though not profusely allowing a lingering suggestion that his children will go to bed hungry tonight all the same. And then he wraps up his blanket, places it back on the lead camel, helps us climb back on our own hump beasts and has us delivered to Dartafurit within five minutes. We never see him again. The rest of the day unfolds lazily. Noel tackles an online math lesson and Brahim drives me into town and the nearest ATM. He prefers not to be paid by credit card. We talk as he drives, or rather Brahim, who is maybe in his mid-thirties, wearing the traditional Berber head wrap, good-looking and clearly of healthy stock, talks quietly and I listen. He tells me how much he enjoys living out here, how peaceable it is, how the Berbers are gentle folk, skipping over the fact that it was Berber mercenaries who conquered southern Spain back in the year 711 and established an Islamic caliphate on the European continent, ensuring that the region now known as Andalusia, that from which we have arrived, has its own unique culture and architecture and bloodied history. But that was then. Brahim describes how the various tourist businesses the Berbers own here help each other out, and how, though he has lived elsewhere in Morocco, including for some years in the busy city of Marrakesh, he sees nowhere to compare to this, his place of origin. As with Saeed, I envy him his peace in the world. His inner calm persists even when my debit card obstinately refuses to work. He eventually retrieves an employee from inside who explains that Moroccan machines do not accept MasterCard. We have to undertake a round trip back to his dar to retrieve my visa, and there will be costs attached to withdrawing money from it. But we are talking peanuts. The entire 36-hour stay for all three of us. The dar with our private villa, the food, the camel rides, the overnight oasis, Brahim's driving, every single item short of Mohammed's tip comes to less than $120. Brahim is at the wheel again in the early evening, driving us into town to board the Super Tours bus back to Fez, from where we must rush back to Tangier by train and then by boat on to Malaga, the major coastal city of the aforementioned Andalusia region of Spain, given that in two days we have a plane to catch to Tanzania, back in Africa of all things, this roundabout journey being the peril of booking our flights way in advance. We have, it could be argued, gained little of genuine cultural or educational importance from this brief trip to the fringes of the desert. We've done nothing that merits taking a year out from our everyday existence in the States. Sure, we've ridden camels, we've stepped foot in the Sahara, and I've even run in it, and we've slept in an oasis, and all for the first time. But this is ultimately a touristic experience, as evidenced by the number of Moroccans who similarly undertake the trip. It is not the adventure of committed travellers. And yet, had we not decided to rush down to the desert once we made it into Morocco, we would not have experienced the terrifying journey in the Grand Taxi from Sidi Qasem to Fez, nor, admittedly, my wife's harassment on the bus from Chef Sharon to Sidi Qasem before it. We might never have ventured to Fez and stayed in the oldest continually functioning Medina on the planet, and I wouldn't have almost vomited on sight of a camel's head hanging like a war trophy in the indoor meat market. 
nor almost been taken in by the sweet sellers, nor succumbed to the assurance of the spice merchant that he had just the powder to defeat Noel's persistent cough. I would not have engaged in that discussion about international soccer or American eating habits, who qualifies as African and being quizzed on my perception of Muslims by the teenage Mahmoud on the bus from Meknes to Mazuga. Nor would we have made friends with Saeed and his family, who have naturally invited us to stay with them in Casablanca any time. I would not have enjoyed the company of Brahim, nor snoozed within the comforting walls and stood upon the rooftop of his all-modcon's mud and straw villa. I would not have seen the sunrise across the Sahara, nor the sunset behind it. I would not have sung along to my kids' rendition of the Campfire Song Song by Campfire in the Sahara Desert, nor laughed out loud at Muhammad's stupid jokes. And I wouldn't have chuckled to myself at his vain attempt to convince us of his metalsmith skills. I would have lived just that little bit less. Before we leave, we return to the rooftop of our vast private villa. The sun is setting again, casting its spell across the vast expanse of the Sahara, and this time it is to my son that I hand my iPhone, to provide permanent souvenirs of and for his parents. I am wearing a hoodie I borrowed from my host in Malaga to keep me warm, and a white baseball cap, and I sport glasses. I look properly middle-aged and, for once, comfortable with it. My wife, on the other hand, has on the black vinyl bomber jacket she's worn for years and her dyed dark hair falls down in rock and roll bangs in vivid defiance of her own ageing process. I lean in and kiss her gently, tentatively even, on the lips. And she does likewise to me and our 11-year-old frames our goldfish embrace perfectly. We may no longer be in love, but at this moment, all is bliss. So, our son Noel did complete a vlog about our little trip into the Sahara, editing it on the train back from Fez to Tangier. I watched it last night, and it was quite emotional for me, not least because he's such a high-pitched, prepubescent little fellow in the clips, a far cry from the full-grown 16-year-old of now. One consistency, however, has been his continued love of the guitar, and it's his instrumental recordings that provide much of the incidental music for this show, including the credits. Noel actually released his debut EP at the start of this year, called Extended Placebo, and I mention this not necessarily to promote it, but because the artwork he chose was, by pure coincidence, from this very trip into the Sahara. If you check it out on any of the streaming platforms, well, the front cover you'll see is the actual rooftop of our villa at Datafoit, and the short teaser video clips he made to go with it, which can be seen on YouTube, are similarly from the very 36-hour period I just described. Anyway, Noel did not provide the incidental music for this particular story that you've just heard, 
That came courtesy of the Free Music Archive. Specifically, I use clips recorded by the Moroccan, Brahim Fugan, who does indeed have the same first name as the host of Data Foyt, by a pleasant coincidence. Fribgan, though I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly, now lives in New York. The clips were recorded at WFMU and they were used under the Creative Commons license. Full details about his music and links to any other audio clips used from the Free Music Archive will be listed in the show notes. To return now to the previous episode of One Step Beyond, I had been hoping I could get out on my own skis and explore the backcountry bug for myself, recording a show as I did so. But in part, I took guest Julie Maguire's advice to heart about checking out your possible four lines early, in the autumn, before the snows come. And given that I don't have skins for my skis either, it would be quite the expedition for me and I didn't feel 100% confident about it, especially on my own. All the same, I gave serious thought to hiking up nearby Bear Pen, which has a wide trail for easy downhill runs and apparently leads up top to a former ski mountain somewhere. But we have a very short ski season here, even if it seems like a long enough winter. And when this last weekend rolled around, the cycle of early spring thawing and freezing had stripped much of the snow and turned what is left into icy, teeth-chattering material. I decided instead to head out with my girlfriend and complete the last of the four winter hikes I need by March 21st if I want to get my Catskill 3500 badge within the next nine months. That meant taking on Balsam Mountain. Now, the hike itself is nothing too strenuous from where we entered, on the northern side, and in normal times I'm sure I could have run the whole five miles in well under a couple of hours. But this past Sunday, winter returned with a vengeance. I had seen something about a wind advisory on my phone first thing, but it wasn't until we were on the ridge that connects Bel Air Ski Mountain with Balsam, and which then goes on to Eagle and Big Indian in turn, that we felt its full force, by which point it was howling and snowing too. I wasn't particularly worried about completing the journey on my own behalf, but my girlfriend was on only her second of the 3500s, and this is something she'd never even have contemplated but a year ago. And of course, there is always one part of every Catskill mountain where it gets steep and you have to go hand over a fist, which, when the rock face is coated with ice underneath the snow, makes it suitably scary. She made it, I'm glad to say, and hats off to her for doing so, though we should probably actually credit the microspikes underfoot. Now, we did also carry snowshoes, thanks to Radio Kingston's Jimmy Buff for the loner, but they weren't needed. And I know they weren't needed, because as we were ascending the peak we ran into, or rather slowly walked into, a female couple on their way down who were carrying their snowshoes on their backs and confirmed they hadn't needed them, that spikes would remain a better option. And when I then observed that one of them must have earned her 3500 club badge given that it was sewn into her beanie, she introduced herself as the president of the Catskill 3500 club, Maria Bido Calhoun. Now, kind of makes sense if you spend enough time on the 3500 club's peaks and talk to enough people you encounter you will run into the president of the mountain club so i'm hardly going to put that down to coincidence or serendipity or weirdness or spirituality but it was lovely to meet her all the same and we did briefly discuss before we all got suitably cold and needed to move on the overwhelming popularity of the local mountains right now 
Something that's been replicated globally as people take to their backyards for exercise and adventure due to the restrictions on long-distance travel. And we also discussed how, here in the Catskills, there's something of an exponential increase in people seeking their badge. Some of these people, unfortunately, have insisted on taking on their winter climbs, what we call bare-booted, meaning without spikes or snowshoes, leaving deep post holes where their feet have sunk in the snow. We met one such couple. On their way down the icy face, we had only just ascended. I mentioned the need for spikes, as much to protect themselves as the trail, and the young man of the couple assured me they had some and put them on immediately and thanked me for my advice. I want to believe they promptly did so. My girlfriend thinks they were blowing smoke up my rear end and didn't have spikes to begin with. So, let's just recap this for anyone who lives in any kind of winter region, and you can always file this info away for next winter if it's too late for this one. Snowshoes are, admittedly, expensive, $200 and up, besides which they are completely and totally sold out this pandemic winter. You just can't get good ones. Micro spikes, though, are cheaper, $50 and up, and not only are they more readily available, but my experience this year is that you will need them much more than you might need snowshoes. In short, invest in a pair and always go out prepared. And now, circling all the way back around to my short story, one of the positive reactions I got to my episode 15.5, You Don't Believe in God, the story that preceded this one, was from Will Conway, who I've mentioned a couple of times now. Will was in the process of setting up his own podcast series, Baggage Claim. Short stories based around the year out he took to travel solo in South America. And they're good. They're real vignettes and he reads them as if he's on stage. Recently, he in turn recommended another show, Greetings from Somewhere, and I can see why. Not only do the two podcasts have something in common in that their hosts are youngish Brooklynites with a positive view on the world at large and similar voice inflections and production approaches, but Greetings from Somewhere, honestly, is the show one step beyond aspires to be. The production values are insane. Host Zach speaks to three or four experts for each episode, by which I mean authors, park rangers, journalists, professors, people of that scale. He commissions original background music and, more importantly, he approaches his subject matter, all of it a variation on the theme of the American road trip, with a sharp political focus. His two-parter about the road trip itself delves into the racist roots of suburbia and the originations of the Green Book. His episode on Mount Rushmore educated me to its roots in white supremacy. And his recent venture to Disney World in the midst of the pandemic avoids the easy judgment calls on those who find comfort in Orlando's famous theme park. Similarly, Zach produced an excellent Greetings from Somewhere episode on Burning Man, which you all know by now is close to my own heart. He breaks down the myths versus the reality, and he talks about what happened in 2020 when the event was cancelled but some people showed up anyway bringing it that much closer to its roots of shared responsibilities and an absence of commerciality. This episode was all the more impressive given that Zach has never actually been to Burning Man. One connection he did not make, and perhaps because he hasn't been there, is that both Disney World and Burning Man use the slogan, Welcome Home. And so, if we do want to avoid judgement, we have to ask if it's any worse to attend Disney World for your annual comforting pilgrimage than it is to attend Burning Man. For my part, I originally ventured out to the Nevada desert. Yes, it's a desert, but a salt desert, so it's not the Sahara. With my older son, three years in a row, 2007 to 2009. 
after which I realised I was already taking Burning Man for granted and decided to let the field lie fallow for a year. Burning Man was forced to lie fallow in 2020 and it probably will have to in 2021 as well. And hopefully the true and committed burners will use its absence as an annual retreat to bring its guiding principles into other aspects of their lives accordingly. Look, as I've said before on this show, I would never have embarked on that round-the-world trip had I not been to Burning Man. And that, hopefully, is a good way of tying up all the various threads and themes that have run through this episode's short story and my subsequent monologue. I will leave you, however, with a throwback to the first four episodes of this show. As leads go, this obituary in the New York Times takes some beating. But the full story is even more fascinating. Reading, at times, like an article from the satirical magazine The Onion. I will link to the full obit in the show notes. But for now, let's all bow to the memory of a man who spent almost his entire life outside his comfort zone. Alexander Doba, a Polish adventurer who kayaked alone across the Atlantic at the age of 70 while subsisting on his wife's fortifying plum jam. After having twice paddled solo across the Atlantic when he was in his 60s, died on February 22nd on the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, Africa. He was 74. His son Cheslaw said the cause was asphyxia, resulting from high-altitude pulmonary edema. He arrived in Tanzania last month. On the morning of February 22nd, he reached Kilimanjaro's summit with two guides. After taking in the view, he sat on a rock to rest. He said many times that he didn't want to die in his bed, his son said. From what we gather, he was euphoric to reach the summit. Then he sat down and fell asleep. One Step Beyond is written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher. Incidental music is by Noel Fletcher, unless otherwise stated. The theme song is by Madness, used with permission, and the logo is by Mark Lerner. Special thanks to Radio Kingston for airing these episodes and for supplying studio space when not under lockdown. If you like what you hear, please consider throwing us a tip via the Support This Show button on your phone or by visiting supporter.acast.com slash one step beyond lowercase. You can also hit the subscribe button and or leave a positive rating and or review. It all helps. One Step Beyond is on social media, mainly on Instagram. Just search One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher there or on Facebook and Twitter and we should come up straight away. To subscribe to a newsletter, to reach out via email and especially if you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, the address is onestepbeyond at ijamming.net. One Step Beyond is available on just about every podcast platform known to man and most likely a few that have yet to be discovered. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy and stay active. <laughs>